good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. Welcome. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at CF. And uh, so this morning we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back around you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that. That is our gift to you. Uh, we love giving Bibles away, so please feel free to keep that. Uh, if you are using the seat back Bible, you're looking for page 855, 855. Uh, and as you're turning there, I got a lot of people I want to thank. So let's thank the Bailey family this morning for, for cooking us breakfast. Thank you very much for coming early. Thank you for providing us food. I know we're all full and it's warm in here, so I will keep this relatively short. Um, but thank you. Thank you to the Bailey family for, for being here um, and for cooking us breakfast. Uh, the other group I'd like to thank are our community group leaders. Our community groups are ending this week. We're taking a break for the holidays, so I'd like to thank our leaders. If you're a leader, please stand up. Um, thank you very much for serving. Thank you for the time and energy and prep you have put into these groups for blocking out time during your week, for being, um, <clears throat> for really just caring and loving the groups uh, that you've been leading. Thank you very much. So our groups run, we do short-term groups. We run about 17 weeks and then we take a break and then we'll run again. So we will start again uh, in January. So if you are um, interested in community groups, hopefully next week we should have some information about that uh, and those will roll out in January. So be on the lookout for that. So uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing in our Advent series. Advent has to do with the waiting, the coming of Christ, the waiting on the arrival of Christ. It's uh, a season where we remember the waiting that the Israelites did as they waited for their Messiah. And now we wait again for the coming of Christ, for him to come and redeem and restore everything that has been broken by sin. And so we are in this season of waiting. And as we celebrate this time of Advent, um, I thought it would be uh, an interesting experiment if we explored one of the more uh, famous, one of the more regular parts of Christmas decorations that almost everybody has in their house, the nativity scene. And so uh, last week we looked at the angels and the shepherds and the, the message of the gospel, the truth, and how the shepherds couldn't help but respond to that message. Um, and now this week we're going to look at two other key figures that are in the nativity, Mary and Joseph. And we're going to look at um, the questions that they had to wrestle with and why it was that they were chosen uh, to be the earthly parents of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to, to come together and to worship you. Lord, we rejoice because you are king. We rejoice in your majesty and your glory. We rejoice in your trustworthiness. We rejoice that we can come to you with anything and know you are there for us. Lord, you are great and awesome. And we come this morning seeking your rest, seeking your presence. Lord, some of us have come here this morning with a lot of baggage and are exhausted and beaten up by the world. And we're just lucky we made it out of bed this morning. And so, God, I pray that you reveal yourself to us as we study your word as we worship you, as we pray, as we fellowship, as we do all of these things today, Lord, I pray that you make yourself known to us. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. And we pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, uh, picking up in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. 
And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So in this passage, we get some details about who Mary is. The 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 author gives us, Luke gives us um, some details, introduces her in verses 26 through 27. We see that she is from the town of Nazareth. Nazareth was a nowhere little town. It's barely a town. It's more like a village. At most, it had about 400 people. Very rural, nothing of note. Nazareth is just kind of one of those towns you just drove through and you didn't even realize it. We find out she is a virgin and betrothed. Being betrothed is something like our engagement today, but actually it was a little more binding. It was legally, it was basically like the couple was married, except they lived in different houses. A divorce would actually be needed to break this bond, so it was a little more formal than our engagement today. We learn that she's betrothed to a man named Joseph, and that Joseph is from the line of David. His heritage is tied to King David, the greatest king Israel ever had. That's a big deal, and that's going to come into play later on. And then we find out her name is Mary. That's the order of how she's introduced. It's kind, of inter- it's kind of awkward, isn't it? I mean, it's not how we do it today, right? If you're at a party with someone, you would go up to that person. You know, if you're at a party with someone and you want to introduce them to someone else, you would say, this is so-and-so. I know them this way. Here's an interesting fact about them. Right? There's this rhythm that we have all agreed as far as social contracts go and how to introduce people. This, the way that Luke introduces Mary, is the total opposite and really kind of personal and uncomfortable. Why is she introduced this way? I believe Mary is introduced this way because, like the rest of the book, this isn't about her. This is about Jesus. And so when we look at it through those eyes... It changes a little bit. It says that she is from Nazareth, which speaks to Jesus' humble beginnings. Nazareth isn't known for anything. Later on, when Jesus is an adult, someone will actually say, can anything good come from Nazareth when they're talking in regards to Jesus? We find out she is a virgin. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before this happened, the prophet Isaiah said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. She is betrothed, which means this pregnancy comes at a real awkward time for Mary and Joseph. But really, what it is doing is that it shows us from the very beginning, from his arrival, Jesus makes his parents and makes us answer the question Do I actually trust God 
will provide? Do I actually trust him? And we find out Joseph being from the line of David. That's an important point. God actually made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. He said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David, your descendants will be on the throne. And one of your descendants will be there forever. That descendant is Jesus. And so once Mary is introduced, the angel brings her this message. She said, the, the angel says, greetings, you are highly favored. God is with you, Mary. You have received God's favor, also translated God's grace. Mary didn't do anything to earn this status, to be highly favored, to be well-blessed. She didn't do anything to earn this status. And these words overwhelm her. She's actually frightened and cautious by the situation. Why? Because she's humble enough to know that if she has found favor with God, it's because God chose to show her favor, not based on her merit, not based on who she is. Because if it was based on merit, if God's favor, if God's grace was based on how perfect she was, then she wouldn't have been troubled. She wouldn't have been trying to understand the situation. She would have just said, yep, that's me. The angel would have said, greetings, O blessed one. God has found favor with you. And Mary would have said, yeah, I know. But that's not what happened. She is troubled and cautious by the situation because she realizes she has done nothing to earn this grace and favor. And then in verse 31, we get the big news. She say, the, the angel says, you will have a son and his name will be Jesus. He will rule and reign and his kingdom will have no end. Now Mary, being as smart as she was, could read the situation. She read the situation and realizes the angel isn't talking about some future offspring of her relationship with Joseph. She understands based on the fact that, you know, there's an angel showing up and how, who this offspring would be, she understood that there had to be more to the situation. And that's why she asked the question, how can this be since I am a virgin? And in verse 35, the angel reveals, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary will conceive a son. The virgin will give birth, and not only give birth, but give birth to the Son of God. Now we read this, and as I said last week, some of you have heard and read this story hundreds and hundreds of times. Nothing new here. And we might think, we read that, and we might think, man, Mary must have felt so excited, so honored, so blessed to get to be chosen as the mother of God. She must have been just ecstatic. But put yourself in her sandals for a second. Mary is a teenage girl, probably no older than 14 or 15. She's from a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere. She was probably illiterate. And because she's from Nazareth, Nazareth is 400 people, do you think people are going to actually believe she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. It's a tiny little town. Everybody knows everybody else's business. I mean, it's a lot easier to believe maybe she cheated on Joseph. Or maybe her and Joseph took things too far one night. Either way, people are going to talk and judge and question and assume the worst of the situation. And what about Joseph? She had to be thinking, well, what, what is he going to think? How in the world will he believe her? And if he doesn't believe her, he's probably going to end the relationship, which would then leave her to raise this boy 
by herself. And actually, worst case scenario, Joseph would not only break off the relationship, but Mary would be put to death by law. These things must have been running through Mary's head. But really, it all boils down to one question for Mary. Do I trust God? If I submit to this, if I enter into this, do I trust that God will take care of whatever issues or concerns or problems that may arise from this situation? Can I trust God? It's the same question we are faced with today. And you know, I think before the angel showed up, I think Mary would have said, yeah, I trust the Lord. And I think it's the same for Christians. I think when life is easy, when we're just going through the motions, when everything is great, it's easy to say, yes, I trust the Lord. Of course I do. But every so often, every once in a while, we're given tasks, we're given situations, we're put, people are put into our lives, hardships are put into our lives. We are presented with opportunities to actually see if we actually trust God. We are given these moments where God says, you say you trust me, I want you to show it. And when those times come, people tend to move a lot slower, don't they? We're more cautious. We tell people, well, we're praying about the situation. I'm seeking counsel about it. I'm making some pro and con lists. And sometimes that's good and that's important. And you shouldn't just, you know, be cavalier with big decisions. But there are also moments that you may miss out on because God is calling you to respond right then and there and not later. God is calling you to take action in the moment. (laughs) Honestly, though, I think this is a moment for Mary where she would have been totally justified asking for a few days, asking, saying to the angel, hey, thanks, can I sleep on it? I need to process what's going on. And yet, in verse 38, she responds in the moment, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Why was she able to do that? Even with all of the things running through her brain, she was able to do that because she trusted God. Whatever worry, whatever fear, whatever concern she may have had, she believed that God was going to take care of her and get her through it. Those concerns, those worries, the possibility she would get killed, those things all still existed. They didn't go away. But she trusted God more than she worried about those things. See, oftentimes when God calls us to respond, when God calls us to take action, to do something for the kingdom, it's going to involve some level of risk. It's going to involve some level of tension. Will my friend respond poorly if I share the gospel with them? Will it change our relationship? Will I lose out on a promotion or an opportunity at work if I prioritize church socializing over networking? Will I be labeled stupid or naive if I tell people I actually believe what the Bible has to say? Will I be able to get by financially if I give the church the amount I want to give to the church? Will I push people away if I keep inviting them to church? Now, I mean, admittedly, our stakes are a little bit lower than Mary's was, but the question still remains, do I trust God? Here's an easy way you can know if you trust God or not. When you have those moments, when you have those moments that put your trust to the test, how do you respond in the moment? 
when struggles come, when hardships come, when tension comes, when the risk is presented, do you immediately assume God is against you? Or do you immediately assume maybe there's no God at all? Is your immediate reaction negative? Then I would say your trust in God is weak or maybe not existent. To trust something, to trust something or someone is to have confidence in that person or thing. I say it all the time. I use this example all the time. You all trusted the chairs you are sitting in right now. You trusted this is going to hold me up. Do you have trust? Do you have confidence in God? Do you believe he is in control? Do you know he is at work for your good and his glory? Mary knew she could trust God. Why? Because God's word was in her. She had learned it. She had memorized it. She had dwelt on it. Later on in chapter 1, Mary sings a song giving glory and honor to the Lord. And throughout the whole song, she makes references to and quotes the Old Testament. Again, she's probably an illiterate teenage girl who didn't have a Bible of her own or a commentary with cross-references. She writes this beautiful song saturated in scripture because she wanted to know God deeper. She had a hunger and thirst to know him deeper. And so she was at the temple when she could be. She learned whatever she could. She clearly went to the source. She went to scripture to learn more about him. This is God revealing himself to us. He chose to give us this book. One of the best ways to grow in trusting God is to read the scriptures, to learn more about him. And what you learn about him in this Bible is the same then as it is now. Because he does not change. So as you learn more about him, as more of his character and attributes are revealed to you, those things still hold true today. And also, it's going to reveal to you over and over again that God keeps his promises. That he is trustworthy. Mary heard this message from the angel and responded immediately with trust in God. But what about Joseph? What did Joseph do? I want you to flip in your Bibles. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. You're going to go to your left. Um, Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to pick it up in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, mother, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Joseph is kind of the forgotten man of Christmas, isn't he? He's there, he's at the nativity, but we don't know a whole lot about him. 
And that's partially because he never actually speaks. We never actually get words from Joseph's mouth. So we don't really know all that much about him. What we do know is we know he's also from Nazareth, tiny little town. We covered that. We know he's a carpenter because later on someone refers to Jesus as the son of the carpenter. And we know he's from the line of David. We know his, his, his bloodline rolls to the line of David. But there's also a piece of information in verse 19 about Joseph that gets overlooked sometimes. And it's something that jumped out at me as I was preparing this week. Verse 19 says, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. Did you catch it? Joseph, being a just man. Some translations will say he was a good man or a righteous man. This word means upright, virtuous, keeping the commands of the law. You are innocent in the eyes of the law. He was known as keeping the Old Testament law, which means he was a man to be respected. You were never going to catch Joseph breaking the Sabbath or eating a ham sandwich. And so much of the Old Testament law that the Israelites followed revolved around daily life and how you carried yourself. Which means, Joseph, his reputation as a just man, as a righteous man, it was well known. Because again, this is a small town. People knew the carpenter. People knew the carpenter was a good man, that he was trustworthy, that he was a just and righteous man. He keeps the law. This idea of just man, this phrase... This was an identity that was the goal and aspiration of every Jewish person. That was how they wanted to be known. They wanted, if other people were talking about you and your name came up in conversation, they wanted other people to say, that person is a just person. They keep the law. And Joseph had done that. Being a righteous man, being a just man, that's part of his identity. It's who he was. And that identity, that reputation would be put at risk due to Mary's pregnancy. Because now this just man is promised to marry a woman who is pregnant. And the only thing Joseph is totally sure of is that he isn't the father. And I said earlier, this could have huge ramifications for Mary because the law is clear as what to do in this situation. In Deuteronomy 22, it's spelled out that if a woman is unfaithful when she is betrothed, she is to be publicly stoned. And so this just man has a situation on his hands. If he sticks to the law, which has dominated and directed his life forever, then this woman and this baby will die. But here's the kicker. Because he is a just man, because he is dedicated to the law, and thus he is dedicated to God, because that's why he keeps the law as well as he does, because he loves the Lord, there is a part of him that has an issue with this being the end result. And so now he is torn. And we don't know how or when Mary told Joseph or how long he anguished over what to do or like how that conversation went between the two of them. This was probably an arranged marriage. They probably didn't even know each other all that well. And what she is telling him is that she has been made pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's hard pill to swallow. And so Joseph anguishes over this situation. He decides the situation is too hard, too messy to deal with. And so he decides, I'm going to divorce her, but I'm going to divorce her quietly. 
because he wants to protect her. He wants to protect her reputation. And in doing this, he can try and minimize the backlash on her and still adhere to the law and his identity as a just man. And so once he decides to divorce her, he goes to sleep and he has a dream. And an angel appears to him in that dream and tells him not to divorce Mary, but that Mary would have give birth to the Son of God. The angel confirms what Mary had apparently told him, tells him that the son Mary would give birth to will save his people from their sins. You see, the cross wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't something that just happened. It didn't just, it wasn't plan B. It was always planned. Jesus came to earth. Christmas happened so that he could save people from their sins. Jesus came to earth. We celebrate. We put up the tree and the lights and the presents because sin brought God to earth. Sin is the reason Jesus came. Our sin brought him here. Our rebellion against God. Our choosing that we know better than God does. Our desire to constantly be in control. Our desire to try and impress people and to win or earn their affection or win or earn our way into heaven. This false belief that we can somehow add to what Jesus did at the cross. That if I'm nice enough, if I'm helpful enough, if I'm good enough, God will have to let me in. No, he doesn't. God's standard is perfection. Be holy as I am holy. We can't and we won't. There is only one. Jesus. God come into humanity. He is the only one who could reach the standard that God expects. It's why he came. Because he's the only one who could do it. His perfect life, his death on the cross is the only way for us to be saved from our sins. The only way to be saved from your sins is to experience the forgiveness and grace being offered to receive a new life, a new identity. It's by believing that Jesus alone can save you. Not Jesus plus anything else. Not Jesus plus anything you think you can add to the equation. Faith alone in Christ alone is the only way for you to experience what Jesus is offering. It's why he came. God left heaven to come to earth as a baby born to a couple of nobodies from the middle of nowhere. He allowed himself to live a regular, ordinary life as the son of a carpenter. He allowed himself to be betrayed and beaten and arrested and executed. All of that so that you have the chance to live your fullest life, your best life, so that you have a chance to have your sins forgiven and be considered a son or daughter of God. If you will only admit your need for a Savior, place your trust in Jesus, there is grace to be had. When Joseph, what Joseph heard from the angel, what the angel told him was really the gospel, the good news that there is hope in Jesus, that he will save their, his people from their sins because Jesus is Lord. Let me ask you a question. Why did God wait? Why didn't the angel show up to Joseph right after Mary? Right? Gabriel could have showed up to Mary, told her about that she was going to conceive this child, and then show up to Joseph, tell him the same thing. Why did he make Joseph wait? Why did God let him 
anguish and wrestle with this. And then only after he decided he was going to divorce her did God step in. I believe Joseph needed to wrestle with the situation. He needed to wrestle with what it meant to pursue the law versus showing compassion to Mary. He needed to learn what does it really mean to be a just man? What does it really mean to be a righteous man? Sometimes we can only learn certain situations, certain certain lessons from certain situations. We can only learn certain truths if we are put in tough situations. Joseph had to come to terms with the fact that if he went forward with marrying Mary, his friends, his family, his town, everyone would think of him differently. Because who would actually ever really believe their story about the Holy Spirit? The righteous man identity would go away. If Joseph were to commit to this girl and this baby, he'd be sacrificing his reputation that he had earned throughout his entire life. But in doing so, he would show them, he would show the world what it really means to glorify the Lord through the way that you live. He had been doing it with the law for his whole life, but now he has the the ability to do it using the spirit of the law, loving Mary in the same way that God loves Mary. Sacrificing himself for her and for this child. The angel appeared to Joseph in a dream. He didn't even get a face-to-face encounter like Mary got. Instead, he received the message in a dream, which could be easily, he could have woken up and just wrote, written it off as, wow, that's a weird dream. Right? I mean, the other day, I dreamt that Sarah and I were on Top Chef, and we were cooking a dessert meal, and Benjamin, Benjamin was the judge. Does that mean I should quit my job and go be a chef? No. It means I'm watching too much Top Chef. Joseph woke up and he didn't ignore the message. He didn't chalk it up to spicy food. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. There is an immediate response from Joseph, an immediate obedience. Joseph was willing to risk his reputation, his relationships, to do what God was calling him to do. See, the birth of Jesus was no small thing. It was a big deal. (laughs) And from the very beginning, Joseph and Mary were confronted with tough questions they had to face. Can I trust God? Do I believe God is really for me? What does it look like? To really pursue righteousness. What does true righteousness and justice look like? Though both of them may have been overwhelmed by the situation they found themselves in, the uniting and inspiring factor of both of them was the fact that when they were called upon, they responded without delay to what God asked them to do. There are moments... There are situations you will find yourself in that require you to respond quickly. Both Mary and Joseph loved the Lord. They knew Scripture well. That's why they could trust Him. That's why they could respond. How do you view Scripture? Is it a chore? Is it a burden? Or is it life-giving? Is it God revealing Himself to you? 
There are moments and situations you will find yourself in that God has set up ahead of time. He has put you in that place, in that moment, at that specific time so that you could minister, so that you could bring glory to him. But you have to be ready. You have to actually respond. Do you actually trust God? That's the question we need to answer this, this Advent season. Let's pray.